When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi guys, this is Jeff, and we've got something special for you this week. I'm hosting a new podcast series called Reading Lives, in-depth interviews with interesting people about their lives and books. The first episode is with Clive Thompson, and it's available now at bookriot.com slash readinglives or on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. Clive is the author of Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better, a book we've talked about several times on this show. But as a special treat just for Book Riot podcast listeners, I present The Reading Life of Rebecca Shensky. When we were planning the series, I asked Rebecca if she would be my guinea pig, and we recorded a practice episode. So to mark the launch of the new series, here is Rebecca's episode of Reading Lives. I hope you enjoy it and consider listening to Reading Lives regularly. As always, thanks for listening. This episode of the Book Riot podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. With over 150,000 titles to choose from in all genres, Audible.com is the leading supplier of audiobooks. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring the Book Riot Podcast. Welcome to Reading Lives, an interview podcast with interesting people who love books. I'm your host, Jeff O'Neill, and I'm the co-founder of bookriot.com. My guest on this episode is Rebecca Shinsky, Director of Content and Community for BookRiot.com. We talk about first experiences reading sex scenes. I remember that there is a scene in a cabin where a couple are having sex and her butt falls into the kitchen sink. Reading Toni Morrison in college. The way that she handled it and forced us to kind of get past your knee-jerk responses to, to reading something like that and really contemplate, like, what is Toni Morrison doing here? What is she saying? Um, is one of those moments that I don't think I'll ever forget. And getting engaged over an open book. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm reading here. <laughs> and then realizing that he was about to propose to me. <laughs> and I've, and then he was, and he did. I always was a reader. Like, I have really clear memories of going to the library with my parents when I was really young. And there were there was this series of hardback books that each book in the series was about a different animal. And they were bound in this, you know, like in a very, that hard cover that you could tap on, um, sky blue. And I went through all of the animals uh, and were read all of those. Were they alphabetical or what? How were uh, they arranged? Do you remember? I don't know. And what I, age are we talking about? I don't know. I'm bad at that part of the oh, game. Okay. Probably okay. like five or six. Okay. Okay. Um, my parents always read to me, and I remember my dad reading The Hobbit to me as a bedtime story when I was like seven or eight. Um, and ha- I have his voice in my head anytime I read a Tolkien book, which is kind of fantastic. That's um, like my dad is reading those to me. Now, is your but, memory of that that was it scary, The Hobbit, no, or is it thrilling, so, or what, he made what was it so the emotion? Fun, like. Uh, the my the first thing I remember about that is my dad doing the stuffy nose voice for when they all come to dinner and um, break the dishes and crack the plates because that's what Bilbo Baggins hates mm-hmm. and Bilbo has a little bit of a cold and he says thag you very much. Um, I just I just hear that in my dad's voice and he made it really fun and did the you know the troll voices and the dwarf voices and I felt like these people were marching around and he. I don't think he made up tunes to the songs, but he read them to me as poems. And I 
felt like I was going on this journey. And also it took forever because that's such a long book to break up right. into little bits of bedtime story. So it was right um, before bed. Yeah, it was right before bed. There Are you in your jammies or what what's oh, for me, sure. paint the picture for me? I'm in my jammies. It's probably like a long sleeve cotton nightgown with mm -hmm. some sort of Disney princess. And this front. is Kansas City, right? This is Kansas City. Right. And you have one Kansas sister. City. Was your sister there too? Older or younger? No, she's younger. She's a year and a half younger. But she wasn't there. She wasn't there on the couch. She wasn't. We didn't do joint bedtime story things. And I don't know, or maybe we did when we were really young, but by the time my dad was reading me The Hobbit, mm -hmm. she wasn't there. Maybe she had gone to bed already. Um but Did she get her own stories or you, you didn't care enough about your sister to pay attention to what she was getting ready to? <laughs> I don't to. know. I don't sure. know. I was, and I was the one who was like clearly into books. My sister was, is, was really active and outdoorsy and loved to just like, she was one of those kids that if my parents had flung the doors open in the summer and been like, go outside and don't come back until it's dark, she would have loved that. And uh, we lived in the suburbs and it was the late eighties and early nineties. And that's how it was. You know, there were just yeah. tons of kids running around and I would, I am much more inclined and have always been, you know, that's great. You guys go outside and have fun and I'll lay on the couch in the air conditioning reading a book. Um, but I don't remember being overly bookish. Like my parents did always have to let me bring a book to church and I would hide it in the hymnal. And so when I got bored sitting in church for an hour, I would sit and read like the babysitter's club or something inside <laughs> the hymnals at church. And so they always encouraged that or at least tolerated it. But I didn't ever, I didn't really think of myself as a reader, like in a way that it defined my identity really until my early twenties. Like, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, and I, I feel like, like that's late for, I, I feel like it's late people. too for being on, for mm. especially like living in the bookish internet. And then for having the job that I have, I feel like I'm supposed to have an origin story <laughs> of like, <laughs> like, and I was I walking through the woods and <laughs> right. there I found it a copy of the last Mohegans <laughs> right. in the clearing. Um, but, so books were just always sort of part of my environment, but it wasn't the only thing I did gymnastics as a kid. Um, in high school, I was on student council and the spirit club, which is like the pep club sort of thing. Um, and I always had a bunch of other things that were happening in my mm. life in addition to books. But I have some early friend memories around books. Um, a girl named Kate Sullivan, lit, who I was good friends with fourth grade through sixth grade. Um, she lived a couple houses away that if you walked through my parents' backyard and then the backyard that backed up to it and crossed a little street, I could be at her house. Mm -hmm. um, and she was in the same classes that I was in. And she was also kind of nerdy and not super popular. And she liked the babysitter's club. And we would get a bowl of salsa and a bag of Doritos or, you know, Tostitos or whatever, and sit on her parents' screened-in porch and just sit there quietly reading together. So this um, is after school or in the summer? Or like, what? where I, are we here? I don't, I remember it. I think it was probably in the summer, but I just remember it being a thing that we did. Um, and it feels like a thing that we did a bunch, but it uh -huh. could have just been, you know, a dozen right. times. Or like but, a, intensely for a stretch of time. And it really Yeah, burned. but she was the first friend that I had that I remembered, like, hmm. not just talking to about books, but that pleasure of sitting quietly reading with someone else in the room. And that like, that was our way of being together as friends. Um, and we did go and do other things. There was a park across the street from her house. Like our time together as friends wasn't just spent doing that, but that was the very first friendship where huh. part of what we did as friends was sit quietly and read together and just enjoy being in the same place, but not listening to music, not talking to each other, not watching TV, but just both enjoying our own books. Um, 
But then it was college. Like uh, when I was in college, I got an Amazon account because I had a little money for the first mm-hmm. time ever. And there was a Borders nearby. And once a month, I would either go to the Borders or get on Amazon and I would order four books or bring four books home. And that would be my like one pleasure book mm-hmm. a week. And that's really when I got into the real habit of actively and consistently pleasure reading. The Book Riot Podcast is sponsored by Squarespace the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For just $8 a month, you'll get easy-to-use drag-and-drop layouts, 24-7 live chat support, and beautiful, responsive designs that will make your website look great on any device. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code POETRY at checkout. A better web starts with your website. So did you know... So you didn't think of yourself necessarily as a book person until then, but did you know before then that like you cared more about books than people around you or, you know, fellow students or anything like that? Yeah, I think so. I remember my freshman year of high school um, wanting to like young adult literature wasn't really such a thing in 1997. It wasn't, was it? I'm not not wrong about that. I I mean, I I was a sophomore in college then, so it was a little later, but yeah. Yeah, I went straight from... Uh, like the Lois Duncan Fear Street, like young adult thriller mm-hmm. sorts of things that right. existed. And there were some R.L. Stein books for, <laughs> for teenagers. But I went straight from those into adult fiction. And so I remember being 14 and wanting to read books for grownups, but not having any idea where to start or what books for grownups were. Like my parents are both casual readers, but not what I would call like passionate mm-hmm. readers or who, um, I don't think their identities are much tied up in being a person who loves books. Um, and so I just didn't know, but Oprah was doing book club. Yep. And so like, I was like, well, Oprah is a grown up, and she has millions of people watching her and these authors are coming on her show. And so the, the first one that I remember was that she was recommending Alice Hoffman's book here on earth. So I somehow, I guess my parents must've driven me to the bookstore, um, picked up a paperback copy of Here on Earth and I felt like such a grown-up reading it and I carried it around in my backpack at school and then would like, if I got to class early, sit it on my desk and pretend to be reading it, but mostly just holding it, hoping that someone Uh, else would uh, notice that I was reading a grown-up book. It is. I mean, I I wonder what it's like to have been that age and of that temperament now, because I was largely the same way around the same time of mm. like wanting to read more, I guess, grown up books or just whatever. And where did you go to know what to to have a shot at? I mean, there wasn't the internet, like, are, are, we're going to read the New York Times. Do we even know to look at the book review of the New York Times? Like, oh, I, I have no idea. Well, I had no idea. And so you would, you would do things like whatever burbled up. So that, that's, that's, do you remember the book at all or just the memory of putting it I on your desk? I remember that there is a scene in a cabin where a couple are having sex and her butt falls into the kitchen sink. <laughs> well, that you would have remembered at 13 <laughs> and, or 14. Right. And I just, and I remember reading that while sitting in class, like waiting for class to start, but sitting in a desk in a classroom. And I'm certain that that was the first time that I ever read a sex scene anywhere in public. Um, I'm sure, yeah. And still, like, I'm 31 now, and if I come upon an unexpected love scene in a novel when I'm, like, sitting on a plane, I feel like I'm still turning 19 shades of red. And, like, there's a sign (laughs) flashing over my head that's like, that woman's reading about sex. (laughs) But that's all I remember, and that it made me feel 
grown up. And so then I read She's Come Undone by Wally Lamb, which is a big, thick, also That was an difficult. Oprah book too, right? Did and you pick not, that up because of Oprah? Yep. Yeah. And not appropriate really for mm. a 13-year-old. Also, a ton of it went over my head. Uh, and then I reread that one later and was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I wonder how common that experience is of that middle term between, I guess, probably 13 and 18, somewhere in there, mm-hmm. of of if you're a, a young reader and you're trying to like push your own boundaries, even though if you don't, you probably don't even know that's what you're doing, but of that experience of like not knowing what you're reading, being excited and afraid of it and embarrassed and feeling like an adult, like all at one time. I remember that distinctly in, in those years too, of feeling like I was ahead of where I was supposed to be and like, loving that feeling like mm-hmm. this is you, not something my peers are getting in isn't that awesome right and you just want like one person to notice yeah you wanted so you were looking so what did you imagine someone would say like, <laughs> what was your ideal no sort idea. of encounter there that like hey that's alice hoffman and you would have been like uh-huh <laughs> like what were you and hoping then I would for flip my hair um I th- I don't know. I don't know that I actually gamed it out that way. Like, I just <laughs> wanted to have that signifier that mm-hmm. I was reading a grown-up book. I guess maybe I wanted someone to say like, "Hey, what are you? What is that? Like, what are you reading?" Mm-hmm. And then I could tell them about what the book was about, and it would just be one of those like readerly exchanges. So you were fishing for a reader friend, not I so much so. as I hope everyone here thinks that I'm like interesting and oh. smart. Or both. Yeah. Oh, I guess no. both like, could be true. No. When I was in high school, this ship had sailed on people thinking I was interested. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, no, or at least I was pretty convinced that the ship had sailed on people thinking I was interesting. Like, smart, yes, but I was not, you know, cool. So it was a flare uh, gun. We're, we, we're uh, looking for kindred spirits. Maybe, yeah, I think it was partially that. In retrospect, like, what would have been the dream would have been for one of my awesome teachers. And I did have ah. some great English teachers to have seen that and then done the thing, like, in the perks of being a wallflower where the teacher starts like as a like a drug dealer like passing books to the kid on the side of like well you're reading these things in class and you're liking them like if one of my teachers had started handing me other great grown-up books um that would have been amazing i think a lot of us felt that way some of it is we didn't know where to get books or like yeah, we no are idea. looking for a deal where do we score around here you tell me uh, mr <laughs> mr smith do you know anybody <laughs> do you know do you have a connect um that I wonder if that did that actually happen, or is that a is like is that a Mr. Keating fantasy, or oh, I mean, I definitely have Mr. Like, Keating fantasy. No, but like, did that people actually get taken under the wing of their like mm. ninth grade uh, honors English teacher, and then they got like Updike and Morrison? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, like, because I remember I never really had a really inspiring. English teacher K through 12, but it sounds like you had some that were important to you. Did you have some that were like, you remember them and specific moments? They bookended my high school career. Mm. Um, My freshman year English teacher was named Joe Hunsley and he'd been teaching English for a couple of decades. He was probably in his fifties at the time that I was in high school. Mm. He was awesome and passionate and it wasn't at all obvious that he had been, you know, teaching or talking about the same books over and over. It felt so fresh. Um, The very first book that we read uh, in his class, so the very first book of my high school career was Fahrenheit 451 and he brought that to life so much. I just remember sitting in class going through pages. Also, that's the book from which I learned the word proboscis. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it it just stands out. He was supportive. He got excited when we got excited and interested in things. And he was one of those teachers that I think is a true teacher who's more interested in taking the students somewhere that challenges them or following the class discussion into an interesting direction than in just hitting the bullet points of all the things that he thinks you need to hear mm-hmm. about the book. So that was the first time that I'd sat in a classroom and had uh, had conversations, so that, kind of that Socratic method where a teacher would open it up and students would be not just allowed, but encouraged to disagree with each other and to debate. And then he would redirect, you know, in a more constructive fashion when it was <laughs> right. necessary. It was so wonderful and so interesting. And um, he just genuinely cared about his students. He made this code word. He said, you know, like sometimes I don't recognize my students a decade later. I've been teaching for a long time, but if after you're out of my class, you're ever, you pass me in the mall or you see me <laughs> at the grocery store or something, raise your fist and say onomatopoeia. <laughs> <laughs> it stuck with you for sure. It did. Like I, every time I go home to Kansas City, I like hope that I'm going to see Mr. Hunsley in the cafeteria and get to say onomatopoeia, like to him at the food court at the mall or something. It is interesting in hindsight to think of your teachers, especially in that middle school to high school area of like, you realize now like, oh, they're people. Yeah. Oh, I wonder what Hunsley, you said his last name was? Like, I wonder what he did on like a Friday night. Yeah. I like, what, what was he, what was he really doing? So the thing you liked about that was that he cared that you cared. It and sounds he really, like. Yeah. And he brought it, he brought the books that we read to life in a way that you know, that made an English class really exciting. My, I remember my eighth grade English class in middle school was mostly like parts of speech and mm-hmm. sentence diagramming and really dry stuff. So for class to become not just about reading the book and being able to pass the test about what happens in the book, um, or not just being able to recite that Piggy's glasses and the Lord of the Flies (laughs) are a symbol for intellectualism, but to like, to have feelings about a book and talk about what an author is trying to do with the way that you think and you feel about the book was, it was a whole new experience that like the experience of talking about books with him, I am certain is one of the things that led me to being the book person. It does seem like our especially those of us who went to public schools of a certain kind, there was kind of a divide in what it felt like they were trying to do. There was the, the texts are like basically your history book and you got mm-hmm. a test and you had to right. know. And then there was also those moments of it's about, I guess, art and morality and philosophy and mm-hmm. theology and all those things rolled up into one, which also is valuable in its own way, but it's not very testable in, in our testing right. kind of days. And I do wonder, like, maybe you just separate the grammar and writing stuff out into its own course, and then you let the other things have time and space mm-hmm. to breathe. Um, uh, I didn't have it ever a really great sort of class experience, but I definitely had teachers where you could see the twinkle in their eye when things mm-hmm. were going well. And that 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 seemed as important as anything is like, they weren't just going through the motions, um, that there was something else going on there. So book ended freshman year, Mr. Hunsley, did I have his yes, name right? Yeah. Mr. Okay. Hunsley. And then, and so fast forward to senior year. Senior year was AP. I took AP English senior year from Anna Lucas who passed away a couple of years ago and was, it was very sad, but she was this 
she was also probably in her fifties when she taught me and she wore, she was sort of a heavier woman and she wore like the long flowing clothes from Chico's. Uh, but you had this sense that she had this mysterious history. Like people told stories about how Mrs. Lucas used to be a model and had lived in Africa for a while and had like been married to some equally mysterious and worldly man. Like she was definitely more worldly than suburban Kansas city typically right. is. Um, and it, her skirts so, might even had patterns on them. They, totally yeah did. okay i know what you're um, talking about she wore the big chunky turquoise jewelry mm -hmm. you know um and she was less interested in being our pal or encouraging us which i think the way that mr hunsley taught was a perfect way to teach young people coming mm -hmm. into high school and mrs lucas was much more concerned with like how are you going to go out into the world now that you're 18 and leaving me um as people who read books and understand them but also who can read culture and understand culture and so she was it was a really challenging course and she taught the kinds of books that aren't typically taught and dissected I think in in high school courses we read the inferno and like I actually understood the inferno um when the way that she taught it and my freshman year of college my very first semester of college I was in another course a big survey course that I had to read the inferno for again and I wouldn't have made it through that because it was not taught in a great way if I hadn't have taken that course with Mrs. Lucas my senior year of high school. So that was much more about like confidently becoming a reader who could go out into the world and pick up. I felt like I could pick up any book mm -hmm. and try to make sense of it at least. Like I, I still haven't tried Ulysses. I don't have any desire to, but in the general sense, like am I up to the task of reading something and at least knowing how to ask the right questions to start getting at what is this book about? Why would you write this book? Um, what is the author doing here? What am I supposed to mm -hmm. feel about it? She really did that. Was that an elective or was that sort I mean, of on the path of what you're supposed to do? Well, or everybody that? had to take English senior year of high school, but you didn't have to take AP. Mm -hmm. But I had AP heard like, English? this was AP mm -hmm. and she just had that reputation of being an incredible teacher. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those, like, this will be a tough class, but she's fair and she'll push you. Um, but you'll come out being really glad that you were pushed. And I, that was exactly the experience that I had. I didn't love everything that we read with her, um, I think I've told you privately, like mm. that we we read some like Henry James short stories that, um, that I didn't think were great at all, and that she didn't really make exciting. Mm -hmm. But where that freshman experience was about, like bringing books to life and making books exciting, she was kind of like, I don't care if you think that these books are exciting, but some of them are things that you'll be expected to recognize in mm. college, or these are ideas that you're going to encounter in books for the rest of your life, and these are the books that brought those ideas into contemporary. Temporary thought. And so, and also she's probably teaching to the AP exam. Did you take the AP sure. exam? Sure. Yeah, right. I did. I have really no memory of taking it, I but I'm, I, I know either. that I did. Yeah. Um, so were you an English major in college? I was not. I was a psychology a psychology major. major. Well, you've corrected that later. Let me back up for a <laughs> sec. So were you the kind of person, like, did, your, did you get books for your birthday or Christmas or like, did you have a big shelf in your room or like, what was your like... I physical book life like had, back then when you I were can in high school. Picture my desk from when I was younger, when I was a kid, having like the box set of all the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. Mm -hmm. And I collected Babysitter's Club, but I didn't have the whole set. I shared those with friends and I got some from the library. But no, I don't really remember 
wanting books like for mm -hmm. Christmas or for my birthday or getting them. Um, it was like I wanted a CD, <laughs> like a CD player, because that was relatively new and the latest Mariah Carey CD and mostly clothes from the cool place so that maybe I could trick some of the cool kids into thinking that I knew what I was doing. Cool kid camouflage. Right, exactly. Yeah. I wanted that. Um, yeah, it, it just wasn't... I feel like I'm supposed to, like I no, said, like I'm I, supposed I, to have this like, you know, big book origin story, but it just wasn't a huge part of the way that I thought of myself or the way that I see the world. And now, um, I, now I talk about books being one of the ways that I, like, it's the lens through which I make sense of things. And when I'm struggling with something in my personal life, um, whatever I'm reading tends to help me get through that. But then there have been some books that really change the way that I looked at things. But that is, is a thing in the last decade of my life. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider of audiobooks. Free apps for iPhone, Android, and Windows Phone make it easy to download and listen on your iPhone, iPod, Android, Kindle Fire, Windows, and over 500 MP3 players. Audible also offers a great listen guarantee. Here's how it works. If you decide you don't like a book you chose, you can exchange it for another title anytime, no questions asked. Audible's My Library feature lets you access your books anytime, even from your phone. And with chapter navigation and annotated bookmarks, it's easy to keep track of your reading across different devices. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Thanks so much to Audible for sponsoring the Book Riot podcast. Yeah, so in college, you, you make the mistake of majoring in psychology. I'm so <laughs> right. sorry. Um, I minored in English. Yeah, and so now... I always find that there was a lot of us like that that started out somewhere else and then we come back to major in English or minor in English. Like mm -hmm. why minor in English? Just because you wanted to take some English courses? Well, I, I knew at that point that I was interested. I had had those good English teachers and reading had been fun in their courses. And I, I've oh, honestly, I've always blamed my high school guidance counselor. Is that right? <laughs> for this, like, um, I was interested in psychology and fascinated by it. And I had took a psychology or a couple psychology courses that my high school offered and thought, like, this is what I want to do. I want to be oh, a therapist. There's nothing more dangerous than Psych 101. Right. Humans are endlessly interesting, which I still think. Um, and so I want to do this and keep learning about human behavior and be a therapist. I think I would be really good at that. And so I, my guidance counselor was like, sure, you know, do that. And then I didn't have a great advisor in college. So I just decided going in that I was going to major in psychology and then go get my doctorate and minor in English because I wanted to have books in my life. And I wanted to keep learning about books and talking about books mm -hmm. with people that were interested in them and passionate about them, which in retrospect should have been a pretty big clue. <laughs> um, but I was afraid that if I majored in English and that would somehow turn reading and writing into a job mm. and like zap it of its passion. Well, um, I did tell me if you were like, I was like, um, I didn't even know what you would do with an English major. Like, am I going to teach high school English? I think I just assumed that I would be a high school English yeah. teacher if I majored in English. I, I, maybe it's because high school guidance counselor don't have a terribly yeah. good sense of how useful and, or, you know, the, the range the, of things you can do. Right. And I had loved high school English teachers, but I did I did not want to be one. Yeah. Um, so majoring in it wouldn't have had any utility. So you I don't come I didn't come from the school of like major in whatever your bliss is and then figure out your career later, which although if you looked at my career, you might guess that. <laughs> come back to it later. Yeah. Um so what do you remember some of your English courses in high school or what books do you remember from college? 
What does uh, anything from, stand out? From stand college, out? like the, the big one that stood out, there were two, um, well, maybe three. <laughs> There's many. Uh, I took a Chief American Writers of the 20th Century course. Chief American Writers? That's what they called okay, it. Okay, okay. And this is in uh, Chicago at Loyola in Chicago, this, right? right yeah. This is at Loyola University in Chicago. Um, and the professor was pretty young. Like, I think his PhD was relatively fresh and the ink was still drying. And so he had a little bit of the Mr. Keating thing going on, like that zeal of the new teacher getting to talk to excited students. Mm-hmm. And we read... Um, we read Richard Wright and we read Faulkner and O Pioneers um, and had just like he made everybody sit in a semicircle and it was that true sort of Socratic method, lots of arguing and more about the conversation than about the solution to the problem. Mm. Um, he was also really cute, which didn't hurt. Like I <laughs> loved going to his office hours. <laughs> I was never um, a student who was brave enough to try to seduce one of my professors, but like I definitely entertained ideas of it with this. Like I think well, I, this he's was, older, he's worldly, he's interesting. He knows so much yeah. about books, mm-hmm. and like he's interested in what his students have to say about books, and so it, that was exciting and fun. Um, the real defining reading experience for me was um, my senior year, even if you were just minoring in English, you had to take some sort of capstone course. And that was always a seminar in one writer. And I didn't know anything of Toni Morrison, but that the year that I was signing up for classes, the seminars were that were available were Graham Greene, Toni Morrison, and someone else that I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And I just knew enough of Graham Greene and had read a couple of the books to know that I didn't want to spend a whole semester reading Graham Greene, but that Oprah had talked about Toni Morrison. <laughs> right, because you're a senior, so this is what, 2004-ish? Yeah, this was would have been the fall of 2004 going okay, into this. so she's got her Nobel. She has her Nobel. Paradise had come out. Mm-hmm. So she's um, in her magisterial Toni Morrison. She is, and it's yeah. the year that love came out. Okay, right. Uh, and one of the professors in Loyola's English department was a Toni Morrison scholar. Her her name mm-hmm. is Brooks Busan, and I have Googled her since. That's an um, unbelievable name. She would ride to, and like it snows a lot in Chicago, but she would ride her bike to school no matter the weather. She had, she was a petite lady with long sort of stringy hair and she was going gray and she didn't care. And so it was just kind of all over. Her hair was just all over the place and she would bike <laughs> to class and sort of perpetually had a little bit of her bright pink lipstick on her teeth. Um, so lacking in like interpersonal charm, but she was so smart mm-hmm. and so passionate and just so interesting. And she just knew all these things. Um, and we read, all of Toni Morrison in chronological order, except for Tar Baby. Like it was like a Toni wow. Morrison book a week for the whole semester. Um, you would read over the weekend and then come to class on Monday and then Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for an hour. We would take the books apart and mm-hmm. um, sitting in her class talking about Sula and the scene in which um, is it, it is Sula. The scene in which um, Eva kills Plum. Yeah. And it's a mercy, like she yeah. thinks of it as a mercy killing because of his addiction. Uh, the class just exploded uh, into it, is this merciful or is it murder? And how do you think about these things? And the way that that discussion went and the way that she handled it and forced us to kind of get past your knee jerk 
responses to, to reading something like that and really contemplate like what is Toni Morrison doing here? What is she saying? Um, is one of those moments that I don't think I'll ever forget. Um, but that was a, 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 just one of the most challenging reading experiences, like a Toni Morrison book a week. Mm. Um, I think we read, I think we got two weeks for Beloved. Say, um, a Song of Solomon in a week? That's a, yeah. that's a lot of reading. And it took two weeks to take Beloved apart. Um, and we, we skipped over Tar Baby, but we did jazz. Paradise is my favorite and has always been. Um, but that, for me, sort of clinched like how I thought about books and the kind of books that I wanted to be a reader of. Um, One of my formative reading experiences was Toni Morrison, too. And you and I have talked about Morrison before, and it's so hard to pinpoint, I think, for me, what it is about Morrison that I'm not sure it's... Uh, revelatory might be strong, but it also might mm-hmm. not be strong. No, like it felt like a religious experience. Yeah, and I don't know. I think it's it deals with the kind of you know almost impossible decisions, like the one you described, like mm-hmm. these people in these impossible situations making impossible decisions. You know, whether it's Setha swinging her kids around or, right. or whatever, that you're like, this is the real kind of exposed wire of life going on here. Yeah, that's exactly it for me with her is a lot of novels, or at least a lot of novels that I had encountered up to that point felt like a world that wasn't the world that I knew or like the people didn't struggle in Mm -hmm. real ways. And the characters in Toni Morrison's novels struggle in ways that I will never know. Right. But that... I think exposed wire is a great way to say it and and that she is unapologetic about the fact that what you're reading is difficult. She's unapologetic when she points the finger at people who people or groups that actually are to blame for terrible. Mm-hmm. She situations. doesn't care if you don't understand. She doesn't care if you don't understand. She yeah. doesn't care if you're uncomfortable. It's like it's just balls out. Mm-hmm. Um and I or ovaries out somehow just doesn't convey the same <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the same thing. But she just goes there. And it feels so effortless the way that she does it and without hesitation. And I think that that sparked, reading those books sparked in me the, the beginning of like, this is the person that I want to be. Mm-hmm. I want to be a person who just is without hesitation or who doesn't apologize for the decisions that she makes or the way that she goes through the world, but who does it mindfully. Um, but that, I think that was the beginning of really starting to click into the ways that something you read can change how you live. Yeah. The world feels like a different place that you didn't know. And I wonder, mm-hmm. I mean, you and I, I mean, no two um, upbringings are the same, but all things considered, if you consider the wide expanse of, of the universe, like you grew up in a suburb of Kansas City. I grew up in Lawrence, Kansas, which is about a 40-minute drive, a college town. Like we've been to concerts in the same place. Yeah, places. and so I'm going to say for a moment that our upbringings are kind of the same. And one thing I think reading Morrison does for both of us, and I don't know how much of it is you know, racially motivated or what, but that felt somehow more like real life than the life I had been living to some degree. I always have felt that about Morris. So somehow, you know, it's closer to the metal. Um, and I've often thought about the racial component there of how much of that is getting the, the scales pulled away from your eyes about my own position in the world. Mm-hmm. And is it reasonable? Is it fair? Is it 
even something I can even try to understand in a real way. But that wrestling with all of those questions I found fascinating from the very first time. For me, it was beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, and the violence there and sort of the, the, the impossibility of the situation is something I long remember of people being stuck yeah. and the thrashing against the stuckness and the, the, the spinning out of, of violence and pain and of emotion and beauty too, frankly, um, that comes with that is something that I think it's, it's difficult to match, right? I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. about you, but it's also where else are you going to go for that? Right. You know, I mean, right. Yeah. And th- I think that's part of what paradise was for me too, is that it's this story about this group of women f- kind of from far flung corners who are living in a convent in a time and town that are violent and they are violent and the women are coming together, but it's not a blind support of each other. Mm-hmm. And, and like nothing is black or white in yeah. Morrison. And I love that, but I also love that she takes apart. Uh, and I had just started to think of myself as a feminist when I started mm. reading her. And so that was really formative as well to see these women in her books who are unconventional, who have meaningful relationships with other women, but who also have very destructive relationships with other women who maybe do destructive things in the name of being supported. Mm -hmm. It's very complex. And that certainly feels truer about women's relationships with other women than a lot of other relationships that I've encountered in fiction that um, either present women's relationships with each other as very fraught or women's relationships with each other as sort of like lollipops and rainbows and unicorns all the time that it's um, but contemporary womanhood, even if you're a privileged white woman is, is a complex thing. Um, And she doesn't, feel any need to make it anything less than that. Um, yeah. Those were just... We could talk about Morrison forever. <laughs> I know. How about, let's, can we talk nonfiction for a second? Sure. Do you, what, what in did you read while in those college years? Did you have any sort of uh, aha moments with nonfiction or yeah, cl- texts or stuff you had to read or you read outside? Like what were the, I will so, always remember this idea from this book. There were, you got any of those? There were two. Um, I don't. I had never thought that I was interested in reading nonfiction. Like my pleasure reading was always fiction. Um, before I took a course about um, it was women, it was a women's studies course about like women and the law, and mm-hmm. we learned all of the landmark cases about women's rights um, and like the, you know voting rights and abortion rights and uh, the whole history uh, in American culture. And we also had to read Barbara Ehrenreich's Nickel and Dimed. Uh, where she goes undercover trying, she goes undercover in several low paying or hourly wage jobs, um, one at a Walmart, one for a cleaning service to try to figure out uh, how these, how women who work in those jobs are surviving in contemporary America. And I remember buying it like before the semester started and sitting down on the futon in my tiny Chicago apartment <laughs> and reading the whole thing in one day mm. and just feeling like, my mind had exploded thinking about these ideas, um, you know, about the necessity of a living wage, um, sort of, there's a lot of liberal politics in this book. Um, and I think that was the first time that I had been forced to think about those things beyond a very surface level, uh, belief that, you know, people should be treated fairly. Uh, mm-hmm. that one was, life-changing in in some ways. And then um, I took an ethics course from an incredible professor 
who made us read Stiff by Mary Roach uh, when we were talking about issues with the right to die and what and body donation and science and how humans interact with med- with medicine in a lot of ways. And Stiff is so interesting. It's about what happens to your body after you donate it to science or all the many things that could happen to it after you donate it to science. Um, and it's gross and fascinating. And she's so funny uh, and will go so far just to tell a dirty joke in a footnote that that was the first time I had a lot of fun reading nonfiction. Um, and I remember after that, like, you know, probably looking on Amazon for what people who were reading Mary Roach were also reading and then trying to add some nonfiction to my pleasure reading choices to my four books per month. Like, I didn't realize your, your Mary Roach thing went all the way back to college. Yeah. I mean, I guess it hasn't been that one. I mean, it's not like it was in you know, the late <laughs> 70s or something when we were in college, but I wish that Mary Roach had been just writing forever. Because that's what, like, I mean, like Morrison, that's someone you've been reading ever since, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who have, you read. Read, who have you been reading your whole life? Who like, have I have been? you been? Have there been some people, or whole life is strong since you were three? Um, but oh, you know, John Irving? multiple decade-long sorts of yeah. relationships with my John college. Irving, right? Okay, good. yeah. My my freshman year college. How'd that roommate, get started? My freshman year college roommate, her name is Anna Murphy, uh, loved A Prayer for Owen Meany. And so I bought that. Actually, I met her because um, Loyola had a mixer for admitted students the summer before we started college at a pizzeria in downtown Kansas City. And Anna had on a T-shirt for the Get Up Kids, uh, which is an indie band that came out of Kansas City. And I also liked them. And she was holding a copy of a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius that she had bought at this gorgeous Barnes & Noble in downtown Kansas City that day. That's her. Was like, that was her Alice Hoffman. Yeah. She was trying. She was, <laughs> she was shooting up a flare and she I've found you. I've never thought about that, but you're right. <laughs> oh, that's so um, amazing. And so I... I, like when all of our parents were standing around the room too, it was probably 20 or 30 people that like we had nothing in common other than that we had all been admitted to the same college in Chicago and we lived in Kansas City. And so they were trying to, I guess, help us meet other locals that we could then see familiar faces. I don't know. But yeah. I, she was wearing that band t-shirt. She was holding a book and I didn't know what the book was, but I had decided that with this combination, I was going to talk to her. And so I introduced myself to her and she started telling me about the Dave Eggers book. And then we kept in touch over the summer and requested to be each other's roommates. Wow, um, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah. So this would have been 2000, 99, 2000? Right uh, there? This would have been uh, probably June of 2001. I graduated high school in May of 2001. And so I wonder how she found about heartbreaking work. Because it was the internet was starting to be a thing. Yeah, she grew up in Columbia, Missouri, where the University of Missouri is, and she had she was more of an artsy kid. So she Mm. had her friends were more her high school friends were definitely like more intellectual and artistic than I was, and I would guess that she probably heard about it from one of them who like heard about it from an older sibling, maybe. If I remember right, Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius only had come out in 2000. Yeah, it was in paperback at this point, but it was still pretty new. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, and I remember like buying a copy of it right after that event. So so Anna Murphy, Mm -hmm. because she liked the Get Up Kids, now you read John Irving novels. Yeah. That's where we're going. Right. That's where we're going. Um, She told me at some point early in our freshman year that she had loved this book called A Prayer for Owen Meany. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got a copy and I read it and I loved it. Um, and we talked about it. And then I just started, that was the beginning of my like discovery of having a pleasure reading life of my own. So I just, you know, would 
pick up some John Irving novels mm-hmm. and incorporate them. And at some point, someone, I think it was around the time that Empire Falls was coming out also by Richard Russo and winning awards. And I was seeing that on tables at the local borders where I was shopping in Chicago. Um, so at some point I picked up Empire Falls. And at this point I've read, I think all but two of John Irving's novels mm. and everything Richard Russo has written. Mm. Um, I'm a little surprised that you're a huge Russo fan. And I'll, I'll tell you, I know, I know you a little you know, bit and it, it seems to me you usually like something that's not quite as straight earnest. ahead as Russo. I'm not earnest necessarily, but like if you connect, say, Mary Roach and Irving and Morrison, right? Yeah. If you kind of like make a shape out of that, you like something that's a little askew, right? And I don't mean I do. weird no, necessarily, I, but just like that the world is refracted in some way. That's totally and Russo, right. Russo is more of a realist. Um, it's so charming. It seems to me. Like, is that what okay. it is? Okay. I think yeah. I will say it's probably been five or six years since I've read any Richard Russo. But at that point when I was 18 and I was just starting to find novels that I was, that I wanted to read for fun. Um, those like the small towns and the characters that he created in those towns right. were so vivid. Um, and being on a college campus and reading straight man, which is about an English professor <laughs> in a dysfunctional academic environment was just an interesting way to see the experience I was having from a different perspective, but you're totally right. For the most part, I like, my fiction a little dark and twisty and some, like it needs to have some teeth. Um, I guess the thing about Russo is it's kind of like a snow globe world to some degree. Not that it's all um, idyllic, but it's, it feels like its own little ecosystem mm-hmm. almost. See, I kind of feel that way about Marilyn Robinson also, but I oh, love yeah. her. Oh, yeah, okay. But I, right, but okay, I, fair I enough. I love me some Marilyn Robinson. And Gilead was just, that's another one that I just picked up because I saw it on like a popular now table at a bookstore and was like, well, this looks good. Like I knew nothing. That's how we found books then. Yeah. I mean, maybe, and probably a lot of people still do um, mm-hmm. that, that paperback favorites. That's like two yep. back in, in the most, the front of most Barnes and Nobles. I remember doing that. Um, we also um, stocked the same Barnes and Noble in Kansas city. <laughs> we do. On the um, and, and we've talked before about how that was like the whole world. You just didn't even know what you, you didn't know. Um, right. Because I think that place opened in 97 or 98. So I would have been in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just in 90, no, I'm sorry, 97, 98, I was in college. And I could drive there myself, you know, mm-hmm. the 45 minutes over to Kansas City. And I would just go do it every once and again. Um, and that, but there was that feeling of like, this is where I can find what I'm going to read now. Yeah. And for all of the limitations and possibilities, it is interesting. I mean, Russo, Irving, Egg, I mean, the kinds of books you were going to find on those tables mm-hmm. is what we read as sort of bookish teenagers right. and it college is. And, kids. You know, in I'm, I've been sitting here thinking now about how I, I picked up Owen Meany because of Anna and mm-hmm. I read a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius because of her. And we lived together for two years, but I don't recall sharing any other books with her mm-hmm. or really talking about books with her much. Um, and I also met my husband my freshman year of college. And I have like vivid memories of sitting in his dorm room while I was rereading The Lord of the Rings because the first Lord of the Rings movie was coming out. And he was hmm. reading the Patrick O'Brien Master and Commander series. Mm-hmm. And so like for us, books have always been a thing that we were mutually interested in, but the overlap in our taste is very rare. Mm, interesting. Um, so that thing that happened with Kate Sullivan when I was in fifth or sixth grade, sitting quietly with a person that I liked reading 
And just that was the way of being together. Sort of that got reactivated um, for the first time. I, I dated a few boys in high school that some of them read books and some of them didn't, but reading was never a thing that we did together. And so that was also a new thing that like my roommate and I didn't sit around and read. My other friends and I in college didn't sit around and read, but somehow like in, as my relationship with Bob developed, like that was a thing that we would do was like not have the TV on, but sit in mm-hmm. one of our dorm rooms and both have books. It is interesting to think about, like, what do we want from our reader friends? Like, do we we don't, do we want to sit around smoking cigarettes and talking about the books for hours on end? I've never really felt that myself. Mm -hmm. And I, from most people I know, it's more of just kind of a a wink of recognition as much as anything that we're looking for. Yeah, and like some good recommendation. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, especially in those days. I think now it's easier. Maybe, maybe not. Still, there's nothing quite like having someone, you know, who loves something tell you you should read it too. Um, as uh, Anna Murphy and Kate Sullivan seem to have, have proven. <laughs> but like that is an interesting way of thinking about like the spectrum of the kinds of relationships you have with people because they're book people or you know mm-hmm. some part of them um, is a, a bookish person that you connect to too. So Irving, okay, let's do a couple more multi-decade. Who Any other ones I that like, who's a, who's a Rebecca Shinsky through line author? Mm. Margaret Atwood is becoming one. Uh, um, interesting. But I when do you, first, where was your first Atwood? Do you remember? 2006 when Moral okay. Disorder came out, um, which okay. is a short story collection. And I saw it on a new release table at a bookstore. And I was like, oh, Moral Disorder. And I do remember. <laughs> that that <laughs> doesn't get titled for you. Right. It's like if you had to dream up the Shinsky, like the title that would attract me to a book, that's probably pretty right on. There's an uh, interesting use of Google Glass is like if the titles of the books on the shelves like were personalized, like there were six yeah. or seven and they could scan your reading history. It's like, oh, we should call this one Moral Disorder and she'll buy it. Right. I At that point, I hadn't read very many short story collections and I don't think that I knew that the idea of linked short stories was a thing. And I remember about halfway through that collection realizing that the main character in the story I was currently reading was the grown-up version of the girl that was the main character a couple stories previous, and that there was this thread of common characters weaving at least between some of the stories in the book and being like, oh my God, that's a thing you can (laughs) do. Um, Like That Mm. was eye-opening. And so then I read The Handmaid's Tale and the Oryx and Craig Year of the Flood trilogy. And right now I'm reading her new short story collection, but that set me off on other short stories. And so that's when I read uh, Jhumpa Lahiri's Interpreter of Maladies. Or right that was after. also on a table, probably. I probably picked that up so. off a table. <laughs> had the Pulitzer so. Prize sticker. I remember it vividly. It had yeah. They had a special edition. It wasn't a sticker. It was actually printed on mm-hmm. the cover, a little silver circle that said winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Right. And um, then later I read... Uh, a Sport and a Pastime by James Salter because it's mentioned repeatedly in a John Irving novel. <laughs> and I can't That's remember. So I can't remember which John Irving novel it is now. Um, but there's a character in one of the books who like refers to it repeatedly. And I remember being like, well, I need to know what this is. Uh, and so I read that and fell hard for James Salter and have read his most of his backlist now. I'm trying to hold on to a few since it feels like we aren't going to get much more. James yeah. Salter. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of about, all over the place. How about um, books you remember hating? Anything that stands out as like, uh, I can't, I can't believe this is a thing. Do you get <sighs> any of those? 
I can remember the recent ones more than the past yeah. ones. Um, I've always been a pretty good D and Fer. Like if mm. I read fifty pages of a book and I'm just except not for into your Henry it, James short story, right? But you, you know, school, I had to. Um, but for fun, if I start reading something that I don't like, I just put it down. Uh, it's a nice habit to have. I wish it is I had a good that habit. habit to have. Um, I yeah, I don't know. Like I didn't like Night Film at all last year, and I remember thinking, okay, what is the big deal? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this is a different take. I'm not quite the same question, but there's a oh, story. I did hate oh. Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> okay, well, I, I'm not sure we're going to get a lot of interesting material out of that. Um, there's a story in the symposium where by Plato where mm-hmm. Alcibiades, who is the he was the great pupil of, of Socrates, and he went on to you know lead the the Greek army, blah blah blah. But Alcibiades comes back into the room after being away and sees Socrates, and he says, you know. You, you're always in the back of my mind and it bothers me that I don't live up to your standards and you're always just kind of a needle in mm. my mind of what I should be or something I'm not living up to or something that's wrong with me in the world. Do you have any kind of like needle in your brain books that have stayed with you or that have bothered you, not in like a completely negative way, but you think about them or come back to them or some idea or scene or character yes. has... Haunting is too strong, but do you see where I'm at? What do you, mm-hmm, do you have a I feeling do. what I'm asking? Um, the first one, the first book I remember having that experience with is The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell, mm. uh, which is ostensibly about Jesuits in space, like a, a group uh, slightly in the future hears music coming from another planet. And so they assemble a team of scientists and um, religious folk uh, to go out to this other planet and see who's living there and what happens. Um, And there are some really tragic things that occur and it raises all these big questions about life in the universe and how we think about the decisions that we make, um, what it would mean to be a person of faith um, and to believe in something or some being like guiding the things that happen to you, even Mm. when it's bad things happening to you. And I read that at a time that like I was raised in the Methodist church and I read the Sparrow at a time that I was trying to make sense of what my own beliefs were outside of the beliefs that my parents had told me that I had. And the book just blew my brain up. And that was one that a a psych professor who was relatively young um, named Amy Bonert in, I think I was a junior at Loyola, um, had a book club and at that point, I must have been talking about books casually because she was a psychology professor, but she recommended it to me and was like, hey, I think you'll be interested in this. Um, so I bought that. Um, and I've read The Sparrow, I think, seven times Wow, now. really? Yeah, I didn't I know go that back, many times. Yeah, I go back to it. I have It's the same copy. And so there are, like there's notes in different colors of ink from all the different readings. And at this point, it's a kind of an interesting touchstone to see what I underlined. So what are you going back to it for? Like, why go back to it? I think some of it is that search for the same feeling it gave me the first time. Mm. Um, And some of it is now it's like the book equivalent of standing up against that one doorway in your parents' house where they measured how tall you were every Mm. couple of months. Mm -hmm. And I go back to see... So a touchstone of some kind. Yeah, to see where was I the last time that I read this book, what was happening in my life. How did I think about the things that happen in the book and the questions that it raises? And where am I now? And how am I interacting with the book now? And in a much more compressed fashion, I had the same experience with When Women Were Birds by Terry Tempest Williams last year, Um, completely unexpectedly. um, Read it, finished it, 
started it over the next day. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I read it four times in a row and the copy just sits on my bedside table and now I pick it up and open it sort of randomly to, to passages. But she gave voice to things that I had been thinking about in my personal life or like conversations that my husband and I were having with each other, stuff that I was trying to process with my mom or with friendships that uh, things that had been simmering. And I think, um, I think I talked to you about it when Mm -hmm. it was going on with me that it was like things that had been on my burners for a while, but there was some ingredient missing and the way that Terry wrote those things or the words that she used helped me nail down, um, oh, that's the thing that I'm thinking about, or like, that's the missing element from this conversation that I'm having, or this is the way that I should frame this problem that I'm trying to solve in my life. It um, just in a really tangible and overwhelming way changed me. Um, and so is, I, yeah, I, I go It's fascinating to too to think about, you know, some of what I think we like about books and ideas and writing at all is not necessarily that someone solves the problem you have, but they're going to sit there and read quietly with you sort of metaphorically mm-hmm. about yeah, the problem. Exactly. Um, that someone else has this thing and they know mm-hmm. it and it's real. Um, and you're not a freak for feeling it or thinking right. it. Um, yeah, and, I can, and we're just going to sit here together and, exactly. yeah, I and can, be there. I can point to conversations that I had where I said things that I wouldn't have said or I thought about things in a way that I wouldn't have thought about them if I hadn't read the book. And mm. I think that's the only book that's really ever done that for me. Um, I'm not religious now. And having that experience with that book, like it's When Women Were Birds has kind of become a like a meditation point or a devotion of sorts of, uh, and uh, to a lesser degree, Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strait also of like how what is this thing that I'm trying to make sense of? Um, and how could I be thinking about that differently um, with wisdom from hmm. women who have gone there before I did? So you remember reading The Women Were Birds distinctly, like the actual reading experience. You remember uh-huh. reading, um, let's see, Babysitter's Club on the Porch. Yeah. You remember, let's see, what what other moments do you like? You remember the book and where you were? Other and weird, like, book snapshot like, moments? Yeah, like, that's kind of like sense memory yeah. synesthesia thing where like the scene is emblazoned on your mind. You got some more of those? I have oh, some, you must. I'm sure you do. I do. I have some of those. Uh, the day that the cable guy came to my house in Richmond when my husband and I had first moved here, like brand new city. We didn't know anyone. He was starting a new job and I didn't have a job yet. It was like everything was fresh and I had to stay home home for the day and wait for the cable guy because of that helpful like 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. window. Um, I was reading The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova, which is like a a modern twist on the Dracula story. (laughs) Um, When, where else? I read A.S. King's Please Ignore Vera Dietz one night on vacation in Mexico several years ago when my husband got really bad food poisoning and was up all night and I was afraid (laughs) to go to sleep. (laughs) So I sat in the bubble bath in our suite, like sweating and reading young adult fiction to stay (laughs) awake. Uh, A.S. King has become my favorite young adult writer since then, but that's like a really salient book memory for some reason. That's Uh, so great. I was reading a book that's really terrible called How I Paid for College 
that I don't remember the author's name. I just remember that the book is awful. But that's what I was reading at the time uh, when I was in St. Louis for the 4th of July with my husband before we were married. And he was like, we had gone there every year to see the fireworks on the 4th. And uh, it was several years into this tradition. And we would go and like have a picnic and sit with books until it got dark enough for there to be fireworks. And so I was sitting there reading how I paid for college and at least just trying to like be absorbed in the book. And he started talking to me about like big changes that we'd been making in our lives recently. And I remember being like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm reading here. (laughs) And then realizing that he was about to propose to me. And I've, and then he was, and he did. Um, but I've always regretted that, like, I was reading a terrible book. Like, it wasn't even for a good book that I was trying to interrupt this man while he was asking me to marry him. It was for something awful that I just wanted to pay attention to. <laughs> Rebecca Shinsky, thanks so much for talking to us. I think we should end it right there. That's fine. That's it. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks to Rebecca for being my guest. You can follow her on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. And you can follow me at Reading Ape. See you next time.